Let's pray. Father God, we are in such need of daily mercy, and you so richly provide it. And Lord, as we turn our eyes to your text and through your text, as we turn our eyes to our sin and the wickedness that we hold inside of us, we thank you especially that your mercy is more. And Lord, we pray that you would help us. Help us by your spirit to understand Help us by your spirit to be led to repentance and help us to be reminded of the abundance, the lavish riches of your mercy and grace that you freely give us. And Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to turn aside from worldly means of, of gain or definitions of what it means to be really good at something and that you would reorient or maybe for the first time orient our minds and hearts to the kingdom of God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As a kid, for me, the number 100 was not just a number, it was an idea. And it was the idea that if you got 100 of anything, you were really well off. You were just really good at whatever that was. That if you could achieve, if you could achieve 100, that you've reached a pinnacle. It was the number 100 represented for me the epitome of success. If you scored 100 on a test, you were the smartest. If you had a hundred of anything, it probably meant you were rich. And if you could score a hundred points, you would most definitely win whatever game it was you were playing. But as I got older, I learned that a hundred is not an absolute. That if I have a hundred pieces of trash, I'm not wealthy, I just have a lot of trash. That if I score a hundred points in football, that I'm unbelievably good. If I score 100 points in bowling, it depends on who I'm with. <laughs> that it might be really, really good, or as some would say, 33% is an F. And if I score 100 points in golf, that for me ever to touch clubs again would be a crime against humanity. Depending on what you're playing, a hundred could be the best or the worst. A hundred is only successful in certain situations. And our success is determined by the game we're playing, or more pointedly, our success is determined by the one who writes the rules. There was a time in my life where had you switched my, my bowling and my golf scores, I would have been substantially better at both. But the problem is we can't superimpose a score from a different game to be successful at the one we're actually in the midst of. And here's where we're going to make the turn and go to the text. We can't, we cannot, 
I want to emphasize the negative here. We cannot be unbelievably successful by only the world's standards and expect that that will translate to heaven. What, what good does it does a man, our Savior asked a few weeks ago in the text, if he gains the world and forfeits his soul? And as citizens of heaven, which is who believers are, as citizens of heaven who still live on earth, even though our citizenship is in heaven and we are new creations and we're called to have our minds renewed by the Father and our knowledge of Him, we still think like the world, don't we? We still have issues of desiring earthly success, earthly greatness, and it creates in us a confusion. What does it mean to be doing really well? What does it mean to be great? What does it mean to be successful? And that confusion, if left unchecked, can be devastating. And this is not a 2022 problem, I might add. This is not an American problem. This is a human problem. I have encountered people who have all kinds of worldly wealth and are greedy, and people who have absolutely nothing to their name and they're greedy. It's not a matter of your circumstances, it's a matter of you're a human. And we get these illusions of grandeur that ought to have no place in the heart and mind of a child of God. With that, let's go to Mark 9. If you have not turned there yet, we are in Mark 9. We are picking up where Pastor Adam left off last week, and that is with verse 33. So please read with me in whatever matter words appear in front of you, or just listen closely. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for they had been idiots. No, that's not what the text says. <laughs> they had kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, teacher, uh, we have someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil against me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, 
I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better that you enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better that you enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. When we follow Jesus, we need to remember that all creation is ultimately under his reign and authority. His kingdom is not of this world, but of heaven. So being great in the kingdom of God looks very differently than being great, great on any earthly kingdom. Just like scoring 100 points is very different in football and in golf. So here we are at this text. And what I want us to see this morning is that in following Jesus... We embrace a heavenly definition of greatness, a definition that values last place. As we pick up with Mark, the disciples have been caught in the act of doing something wrong. Here's how you know it. When a person in authority enters a room and goes, hey, so what were you guys talking about? And the room falls silent, it's not good. Like, that's like... Like when a parent does that with their kids, you're like, oh, you're all grounded. Like, I don't even need to know what was going on. I just know it was bad right now. So here Jesus goes, so tell me what you were discussing on the way. No one wants to talk. Because they were arguing over who was the greatest. Think about this. They are walking in a group down the road one of the members of the group is the incarnate son of God. They're like, well, I'm better than you. No, you're not. Well, yeah, I am. And I just, I just feel like from other clues within the Gospels, James and John were probably in the middle of this. They'd just been on the mountain. They're about to have their mom ask if they can sit next to Jesus in heaven. There's this argument, who is the greatest? And one thing that this points out that's, that's especially sad and we really need to take to heart is absolutely anyone can be prideful. Absolutely anyone could be prideful. I mean, you think about their recent moments. Just before this, Jesus said, I'm going to die. I'm going to die on a cross. It was like his third time telling him. And right before that, 
the Pharisees and the scribes and the crowds were arguing with them because there was a demon they couldn't cast out. They had been given this authority. They'd cast out who knows how many demons by this point. But they get to this one, they don't know what to do. They're, they find themselves completely limited. They find out they're following a guy who's the Christ and who's going to suffer and die and be rejected. Over and over again, they're finding themselves full of shortcomings and they have the gall to argue which one of them is the greatest. They've just been called faithless. And here they would say, well, I'm better than you are. I'm mightier in heaven than you are. I have a greater standing with God than you do. Instead of saying, who's the greatest? Well, Jesus is. They're not pointing to Jesus in this argument. Even though they're in his very presence. And then you look at who these guys are. It's a ragtag group of fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, a few other guys thrown in there. And they have given up everything to follow Jesus. Peter's married, and we don't even read about his family anywhere other than his mother-in-law gets healed and has too many guests in her house. James and John leave the family business that was doing really well. They just take up and go with Jesus. They're living this kind of semi-nomadic, semi-homeless existence, ministering from town to town. They've given up everything. They've just been told, take up your cross, follow me. Deny yourself, follow me. And they're sitting here, this group of guys, who should be, in our minds, the holiest. They come from very little to nothing. They've given all that up. They're following Jesus. And here they are, arrogantly arguing, who's the best? J.C. Ryle says, who would have thought it possible for this group to have this argument? But here we have it recorded by the Lord. And pride. None of us are immune to it. It is such a... Uh, look at this quote from J.C. Ryle. Pull this up. It is a subtle sin. It rules and reigns in many a heart without being detected and can even wear the clothing of humility. It is a most soul-ruining sin. It prevents repentance, keeps people back from Christ, checks brotherly love, and nips spiritual concern in the bud. Let us watch against it and be on our guard. And listen to how he, he, clo he closes this. Of all clothing, none is so graceful, none wears so well, and none is so rare as true humility. So here these guys are. They're arguing over who's the best. I've cast out this many demons. I, I picked up four of the seven baskets of bread. My sandals are cleaner. I don't know what they're talking about. And so Jesus says, well, let me teach you what real greatness is. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Make yourself the last. 
Remember that when we read Jesus' teachings on the kingdom of God, we are so prone to think, well, this is so contrary. This is so upside down. And what we need to realize is that I'm the one who's upside down. I'm the one who has it wrong. The kingdom of God is the way it should be. And so I need to change myself. I need to change my way of thinking. I need to change my goals and ambitions. I have a backwards view of pleasure and glory and greatness and prominence. If anyone be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. In the real time of what the disciples were experiencing, they were, gonna, they were about to get two really clear pictures of this. One, as Jesus, the night he was betrayed, would take off his outer garments, pick up a basin of water, and wash all of their feet. As the Savior of the world, the creator of the universe, would take the lowest position of service in the room and say, look, no one's greater than this teacher. If I'm doing this, you need to do it too. And then the next day after that, as he would die on the cross for their sins. And this can be hard for us to swallow. This is a major cultural adjustment from worldly kingdom priorities to heavenly kingdom priorities. But it should not surprise us at all that Jesus would say this. After all, it is exactly what he did. Making himself nothing, taking on a nature, taking on human, uh, taking on humanity, being found in appearance as a man, taking on the nature of a servant and making himself nothing. And so if we are to follow a Savior that makes himself nothing, who are we to think that we should make ourselves much? And so when we do this, when we, when we take on this Christ-likeness, having, as Paul would tell us, to have this, this mind of Christ in us that we would make ourselves nothing for the glory of God, our question becomes, how can I make great the name of Christ among all people? And we can never forget the role of the cross. Remember, right before this, as Mark records it, Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's killed after three days, he will rise. He talks about his crucifixion right before this. We can never forget the role of the cross in our salvation, that we are saved by the Son of God hanging on a cross. And we must fight the worldly views of power and influence that take captive our imagination. That if we could just play chess with the world the right way, we will win. That we have the power to usher in the kingdom of God. If everyone would just get on board with our way of thinking and our way of doing things. We must fight these worldly views of power and influence that would put us as God's people in some comfortable control room far away from all the dirt and filth of the world. That we would lay aside worldly views of influence that take captive our imagination that we think if only we save the right person or put believers in the right places, then we'll have all this influence and we'll have all this power and we will change the world instead of letting God and his glory do it through the daily task of making disciples as we go. teaching obedience to Christ. And I want to say this, and I want to say this very clearly. If we experience the love of God through a cross, 
We can never extend it through a castle. We can never extend it through a corporate boardroom. If we experience the love of God in a cross, in the humility of the cross, and our, our goal, our mission, our vision is to extend the love of God that we have experienced, that we can never do so in a way of worldly prominence, but we must do so with our hands and our feet and our knees very dirty. Serving all. Making ourselves last. And so Jesus, to, to draw home his point, you, you think, how many times are we like in our family gatherings, and this, is, this might get a little uncomfortable, we have the table, and then what else do we have in the other room far away from all hearing and seeing? The kids' table, right? We just, we just get them out of the way. And sometimes we do that. And, and this was a culture where it's like, well, let's just let the kids do whatever they're going to do and the parents can get down to the important stuff. And so what Jesus does is in this room, he takes a kid and he says, we're not going to forget this kid. When I, when I say be servant of all, I mean be servant to the smallest and what we could conceive as the least significant. And we're going to grab that kid. We're going to bring him right in the middle. You're going to be a servant of all. James, John, Peter, Thaddeus, Bartholomew, Nathan, you're going to be a servant to children too. We would love to be servants in the high and lofty places. Oh, I'll be this quiet service, this quiet servant in the high rooms of government where I can go in and I can have this quiet influence and I can see a great, but am I going to serve in a soup kitchen and not just serve the meal, but stay there and get to know people? Am I going to give myself to ministry of teaching people English that's super uncomfortable and I have no idea what I'm doing? Am I willing to be a servant, not just of handing out pancakes, but if we find ways to be in the classroom, to partner with teachers, to be in with students, to get to know them, to be hallway monitors, are we going to give ourselves to serving? And he takes this child, and he, and he gives this example, and I'm just going to say, Michelle didn't tell me to say this, but there's, Jesus places a high value on children's ministry. Right, Michelle? Right. Amen. Amen. So people, as, as Michelle would want me to say, people who are great in the kingdom of God care deeply about children's ministry. But we care about those who would be forgotten. We care about those who would be pushed out to the side, who would be marginalized. And we take, care, we take seriously the care of the ones who might be an afterthought to others. Later, we're going to have an example in a little bit of just simply pouring a glass of water for someone who belongs to Christ. And with this heavenly view of greatness, may it change the way we think about heroes and who we define as a hero. May it change our mind on who we view as truly great. And could we celebrate those who would lower themselves to serve people around them instead of those to whom the world would say, yeah, that's a really impressive person. And so in following Jesus, we embrace a heavenly definition of greatness that values last place and values the success of others. So here we have, we have John like, okay, I get that, I'll serve all, but 
let me tell you what I did to serve you, Jesus. There was a guy casting out demons, and I told him to stop. Come, here's my back, Jesus. You can pat it now. You can thank me for stopping ministry. This is a different shade of pride. John is so adamant here that God's work can only come through them. And he's so adamant that he stops someone else from doing it. The disciples have not been doing this whole ministry thing for very long. But, but we as people just like them, we tend to get competitive about stuff that we shouldn't be competitive of. It's why we have curling as an Olympic sport. John's assumption was that this individual should be stopped. It exposes a very high view of himself and a very low view of the Lord. And this is something we need to weed out in ourselves. Do I have a really high view of myself? Do I, let me ask this corporately, do we have a really high view of Westchester and a really low view of other churches? The danger in preaching is sometimes you get convicted of sin while you're preparing a sermon. And so this, just let me from the pulpit confess my sin. Last, so the last several years, we've had a really, I particularly have had a really fun relationship with the Hoover High School guys basketball team. For their home games, they practice in our gym. I'd get a go every Friday get to know the team, share a devotional thought, have a gospel message woven in there. Sometimes it'd just be practical wisdom. Sometimes it would be creation, fall, redemption. Here's the whole gospel. You need to change your life. Um, and I had a, a really good relationship that I developed over the course of years with Coach Henderson. Loved the guy dearly. Uh, right before Thanksgiving, I was notified that the Hoover guys basketball team would no longer be practicing in our gym because there was another church not too far away that has a full-size gym, which apparently helps to practice in a full-size gym when you play in a full-size gym. I, I don't know a lot about basketball. <laughs> that was really hurtful to me. I got a little upset. I got a little frustrated at a few different aspects within that. And what I eventually did, but failed to do right away, is I failed to celebrate that another church who preaches the gospel faithfully would have an influence in those young men's lives and in those coaches' lives. And what I did was I pridefully thought, well, I'm owed a little more. And I had to confess that sin, and I trust with faith that God has forgiven me. As we minister to the schools, as we work on school supplies, Adam is talking with, with uh, community connection people at Samuelson and more elementary schools, and there may be more opportunities to be in more schools. Here's the deal. Let's say the 2022-2023 school year is uniquely uniquely blessed by God and all the families from those two elementary schools get saved. All of them. Here's what's not going to happen. They're not going to fit in this building. It's, they're just not. Like, we're going to need more bathrooms and elevators if that happens. You guys think it's bad now. 
we as Westchester, we as Westchester need other churches to be doing the same exact work we're doing. Our city as Des Moines needs a whole bunch of churches, and I would argue more churches than we currently have to adequately and effectively proclaim the gospel to every home in our city. And if we can't find the churches to partner with, then we need to plant them. Don't assume the Lord only works within your building. Don't assume the Lord only works within your cohort. This other church with a gym, they're not even a free church. Oh! <laughs> but they are a gospel-believing church. Who well, I'm talking with their pastor about other ways that we can partner together as two separate congregations to effectively love this building across the street and all the people that inhabit it. God's glory and the kingdom of God are more significant than our prominence. And so Jesus says, don't stop him. Even if he's not saved yet, he will be soon once he sees the power of Christ. And if anyone even gives a cup of water to drink to you because you belong to Christ, he will by no means lose his reward. Because you know what he's doing? He's being a servant to all. Do you guys see this? You'd be a servant. Share water. Love children. None of these things are really flashy ministries in an earthly sense. But our Father in heaven looks on them and smiles. So we celebrate the success of the other and we address the deadly seriousness of sin. I think Jesus gave this last part of this message while still holding the child on his lap and still holding him in his arms. Whoever would, leave, you know, if anyone gives you a cup of water because you believe in me, it's, it's, a, it's a blessing. If, if anyone leads one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, they need the mafia treatment. But it's not cement shoes, it's like a cement necktie. Tie a millstone around your neck, cast in the sea. It would be better for them than that, than that they should lead a little one into sin. And then he moves to leading ourselves into sin. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And how often do we lead ourselves to sin? How often do we crave a path to sin? That we have our wrong desires, our flesh. We give our flesh the steering wheel to what we watch and what we listen to and what we do and, and who, we, who we spend our time with or how we define our own pleasure and chase it. And what I want to tell you is do not trust your flesh. It will justify anything it can as fine and well. We think the ends justify the, the means, that I deserve it. We treat sin like cheating on a diet. You know, I ate vegetables all week, so I'm just going to have a pork tenderloin on Saturday. Sin doesn't work that way. And we get the wrong heroes. And we idolize people who do not pass the sniff test of the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the world. 
or the sniff test of the book of Proverbs and what is wise and good and righteous and just and honorable in the eyes of God. Or ways that we lead ourselves to sin is that we just view only the sins that other people have as a real problem. My sin, yeah, it's bad, but it's not terrible. But that guy's sin, oh! May God give us eyes to see that all sin is horrible in His sight. None of it is justifiable. And Jesus gives this threefold warning of hell. Don't, don't, it's better that you go to heaven with one hand than hell with two where there's an unquenchable fire. It's better that you go to, to hell with, with, it's better that you go to heaven with two feet than hell, or hell, duh. <laughs> uh, slow down, catch my words. It's better you go to heaven with one foot than hell with two, or heaven with one eye than hell with two where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Our sin is a real problem. It is a devastating problem. And here we are, we're staring at our communion, knowing we're going to remember the, the, the Last Supper where Jesus said, my flesh is broken and my, my blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sin, but we need to recognize our sin is an absolutely real problem that we cannot ignore. And so how do we deal with our sin? A young scholar recently told me about Benjamin Franklin saying, if I would just master, this week I'll master the habit of not sinning in a particular area, and once I have that mastered, I'll move on to the next sin and the next sin, and in just a matter of a few months, I'll be fully sanctified. It doesn't work like that. It's an impossible task of, of self-improvement. We can't master one sin at a time. It will always come back. And so we need to deal with the source. But here's the problem, and I think Jesus is, is being really crafty here. When's the last time your hand actually caused you to sin? When's the last time you had to lecture your left foot? You know, I, I'm just imagining this, like reading this in like, Older, I'm not going to pick on a particular denomination, but let's say the places where they're like, you know, no sex, it might lead to dancing, those churches, where they're like, uh-oh, uh-oh, got to cut it off. You know, like your foot is not causing you to sin. If, if, if theft is the problem, it's not that I'm walking through the store and my hand has to have that thing in a way that I'm not willing to pay for. It's not an issue with my hand. It's not an issue with my foot. It's not an issue with my eyes. It's an issue with my heart and my mind. I don't know the last time you watched a medical drama, but you can't get those out of you without irreparable harm. It doesn't go well if I do open heart surgery on myself. I cannot deal with my sin the way the text is saying. It's not this easy. So you can relax. I did not bring a cleaver or a sawzall. But you can worry because not even those would do it. Those would not cut the sin out of your life. 
Here's the other thing that Jesus does that's, that's pretty crafty. I don't think he's talking about theft or lust or running into sin. I think this whole time he's talking about the pride and selfish ambition. Because look how he ends this section. Be at peace with one another. You, you're cutting off your hand. Well, dude, there's plenty of pride, prideful people who are, who are missing limbs or have impaired vision. And we also need to realize the danger of sin and how it affects our walk with the Lord. That Jesus gives us instruction that we should stay salty. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? And the point is, when I sin, my saltiness is affected, and I can't make myself salty again. I need the Lord's restorative work for that to happen. And so we need to pursue holiness. We need to deal with sin at its root. We need to deal with our pride and selfish ambition. And not, no human instrument can cut this out of you. Our only hope is Christ. And so we're going to move to a time of remembering that and acknowledging that and working on that. And we're going to take communion. We're going to do it a little differently. We haven't done this for a long time. In a little bit, the praise team are going to come forward. When I pray, the praise team and a few elders will come forward. And the elders are just going to be lined up here with elements of communion. And what I want you to do is where you're seated, I want you to be dealing. Is there a sin in your heart that you haven't been dealing with? Is there a problem that you haven't been dealing with that you haven't been addressing? Would you deal with that before you come and take communion? Would you ask for God's forgiveness? Would you do a turning and repenting in your own heart? Is there some pride you need to let go of? Have you been pursuing worldly greatness instead of being willing to lower yourself and make yourself a servant to all? Have you been ducking accountability? Have you been looking for human solutions to what can really grow the kingdom of God instead of saying, you know what, I, I just need to lay myself down. I need to actually follow my Savior. Take on a cross-bearing way of life. And do that work in your heart. And when you're ready, I would invite you to come forward when you're ready. And what we want to try to do, I know this doesn't always work, but if you could try to come down the middle and, and back out the sides, it makes it a little easier. Just try um, and then when we're done, if you're not able to come up and get communion, we'll, we'll make sure you're able to receive communion. We'll bring it to you if you're not able to walk up. Um, let's pray. Father, you are so holy and mighty. And God, so often we try to do things our own way. We try to do things in a way that makes sense to us, in a way that builds our kingdom, in a way that, that promotes our kind of greatness or our brand of whatever that is. And we don't follow you. We don't really trust in your ways of laying down self and denying ourselves to take up our cross. So Lord, I pray that you would be at work within our hearts. I ask God, would you convict us of our sin? and soften our hearts to turn in repentance to you. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.